Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. You know, in this country, they leak all over the place, even on the Supreme Court. By the way, you have to find the leaker of the Supreme Court. You have to find the leaker. You know how you find the leaker? They'll say, oh, this is treasonous, what I said. So they can't find the leaker. He leaked all about Roe v. Wade. Look, uh, this person leaked from the Supreme Court. Never happened. You know how you find? But they don't want to mention this because they think it's so terrible. You take the writer, because you're never going to find it. They're going through phone records. It's been a long time. You take the writer and or the publisher of the paper, a certain paper that you know, and you say, who is the leaker? National security. And they say, we're not going to tell you. They say, it's okay, you're going to jail. And when this person realizes that he is going to be the bride of another prisoner very shortly, he will say, I'd very much like to uh, tell you exactly who that leaker It was Bill Jones. I swear he's a leaker. And we got him. But they don't want to do that. For those of you who are not sure what you just listened to, I'm going to clarify it for you. The former president of the United States is advocating that male and female journalists, who he's offended by or feeling insecure by because they're doing their job and reporting the truth, that these journalists should be sent to prison where they will be raped and that will get them to reveal their confidential sources. The depth of his sociopathy and cruelty and sickness is is absolutely stunning. Um, and there's a couple of things that to me are even more disturbing than that. One is the people in the audience who are like, yeah, rape, let's rape another human being. Okay. And laughing about it. And the fact that the entire Republican Party is basically still worshiping this monster and wants him to be president again. The guy who says journalists who should be raped uh, be, because we want to know who's leaking and, and who the sources are. He should be president again. So just take that into the voting booth with you on November 8th, because if you're a little confused as, as to who should control one or more houses of Congress, hopefully that tips it to Democrats, because this is a party full of very disturbed people. By the way, we are going to introduce a new segment on this podcast called How's My Trump Impression Doing? Uh, because as uh, Maddie and Jen know, one of my life's goals uh, and one of the most frustrating things in my life is that I somehow, as someone who has done impressions reasonably amateurishly well my whole life, I, I just cannot. And I see everybody doing Trump and I can't do him. And so I'm going to work on it, you nasty. Maybe I'll just keep watching Matt Friend videos and uh, Alec Baldwin and all these guys who are doing him really well. So we're going to keep you updated. I have some homework. I have to go home and study Trump, and I'll do that. Trump uh, was in the news this week. You know, uh, if we want to spend a few minutes talking about shit that happened this week, um, an appeals court uh, rejected his request to stop the release of his tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, which is due next week. So uh, those those uh, returns, which he's been trying for probably seven years now not to disclose, are going to eventually be handed to Congress and uh, his cultists are going to know what a financial fraud he is. Liz Cheney in the news. Back in the news, our favorite Republican. Overnight, she's announced that she will uh, not just endorse, but campaign uh, with uh, Michigan 
Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin from the 7th District. This is a toss-up district. It's a closely watched bellwether right now. Um, and this could really tip it to Democrats who desperately need to hang on to every seat they, they can. And we're still hoping to have Liz on the pod. Our favorite stand-up comic, Herschel Walker, back in the news. Uh, another woman came forward uh, and said she, too, was urged to get an abortion by Mr. We Should Outlaw Abortion, even in cases of rape, incest, and the health of the mother. So we'll, we'll follow that story closely uh, in the next uh, 11 days, uh, especially as his polling has dropped after his uh, amazing performance in his I am work with many police officers officers debate uh the economy growing we ended two quarters of uh downward um retraction and now we have 2.6 percent growth which was 0.3 percent more than expected so people if you just look at the economy where we are jobs unemployment gdp wages stock market gas prices coming down inflation has plateaued and is reversing the economy is strong and that's because of Biden and Democrats. So even if you want to just vote on that and not the absolute lunacy of Trump and the Republicans and Trumpism, there's plenty of reason to go into that booth on, eight, on the 8th and vote Democrat. Keep Democrats in power. Keep Joe Biden and the Democrats in power. 11 days from now, I know this sounds cliche, it is the most important election of our lifetime. Uh, it, it will be the beginning of the end of democracy, but in a more immediate sense, it will just be obstruction like we've never seen before whatever we've gotten out of the biden administration in the last two years nothing's going to happen in the next two years except ridiculous partisan bullshit like impeaching biden impeaching merrick garland impeaching other uh, democrats many of whom we in the cabinet that most people haven't even heard of they're just going to be on a rampage of obstruction and 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 political terror so get out there and vote because it is really uh the most important election we've seen Maddie, I know you wanted to talk about Elon Musk taking over Twitter today. I'm of the camp of let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And you are not quite. <laughs> um, well, I think he's a national security threat. He's beholden to China. Uh, we see this when he talks about Taiwan and toast the uh, Chinese party line. He also talks about Ukraine uh, from Putin's standpoint. And he calls himself a free speech absolutist, which I don't really know how that's going to work with advertisers on Twitter, because if you remove the guardrails to moderation, you're not going to have advertisers because you're just going to have a shit show and no one wants to advertise on a shit show. And I, I just don't see unless uh, unless the advertisers keep them in line. I don't know what happens with Twitter. Mm -hmm. Well, last night he fired the CEO, the COO, uh, the CEO. Oh, oh, I believe, was the person who permanently banned Trump. Do you think Trump gets back on Twitter today? I think that's more than likely. I, I do think that, you know, the COO, uh, that, those people were fired, but they gained $44 million while he lost $44 billion. Right. Yeah. No, it's definitely going to be really interesting. And I don't think we're going to have to wait very long to find out uh, just how Musk uh, leads that company and, and more so whether or not he, he changes it. Anything else in, in the news that you want to bring up? Just wanted to hop on the Herschel Walker mm -hmm. debacle. Mm -hmm. um, Lindsey Graham speaking about how the Democrats were going to melt down if Herschel Walker was elected. Mm -hmm. And uh, talking about how the GOP would no longer be viewed as racist. And when you call out uh, a black man as a token, Lindsey Graham, hey, guess what? 
you're racist. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of stunning watching that, that exchange. And it was actually one point where he like leaned over and like got like weirdly awkward with Walker. And uh, I think uh, Jimmy Kimmel did a clip and he was like, oh, are they going to kiss? Like what was going on there? It was kind of weird. I think even Herschel Walker was like, oh, what are you? I am really. You're too uh, close, man. You're too close. Yeah. I am many close. You am many close to me, Lindsay. That's probably what he would, what he would have said. Um, a couple other things. Uh, the Fetterman deba- debate. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on that. But listen, people in Pennsylvania, if you're listening on his absolutely worst day, John Fetterman is one billion times more experienced, more capable, more qualified, more fit to serve than Dr. Oz, who is nothing but a fake ass doctor, fake pill selling, uh, unqualified, inexperienced uh, carpetbagger, carpet as Maddie likes to point out, uh, which he is. Uh, so let's do the right thing there. Okay. Everybody's got illness in our families. We know people with strokes. Just imagine you have somebody in your family, your brother has a stroke, or you're like, all right, sit in a house by yourself and don't do anything. Quit your job because you're not qualified. Would you ever say that? Of course not. And if you saw John Fetterman sitting in a bar and you went up and talked to him, as we see from him doing interviews since the debate, he, he is a very coherent, articulate individual. And he's just recovering from, from a stroke, which is a temporary thing for him. And, you know, Dr. Oz is just permanently a douchebag. So, And uh, also, John Petterman would never serve tequila with a crudite, nor would he have raw asparagus. And probably crudite. the most important reason not to vote for him, in my opinion. Uh, while we were sitting here today, for the most part, we learned two things. That uh, our former guest on the pod, former... Uh, Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department officer Michael Fanone, who was uh, almost killed on the, in the January 6th insurrection. Well, the guy who basically dragged him out of that tunnel and started the movement to beat the living daylights out of him, he got seven years in prison uh, yesterday. So uh, we're very happy about that. Uh, and then we just learned that uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband was really attacked in in their home in San Francisco. That story is actually developing, uh, so we won't have uh, many details on that. But it just speaks to where we're at in this country today with Trump and Trumpism and the violence that uh, he, he and, and it incites and uh, the kind of society uh, we've become. And this is yet another reason, folks, why on November 8th, you got to go into that poll polling place and keep Democrats in power because violence, autocracy, corruption, treason. I mean, this is just, this is not, this is not what America is. It's not who we are, even though it kind of looks like we are. Uh, we can, we can change that. Maddie, Jen, what's the one thing we can do to change all that and get everything we want? Vote. Vote. You get Roe v. Wade codified. You get everything we want. Climate change uh, investment. Everything we want if we just vote. Instead of voting 55, 60%, what if we went out there and, and, our, and, and, and it was 75% turnout? Just imagine. It's not complicated, people. It's the one day of the year where the janitor and the billionaires have the exact same power. So I'm very excited about our guest today. He is Stuart Stevens. He's a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. He is the author of eight books, including the New York Times bestseller, It Was All a Lie. 
how the Republican Party became Donald Trump in 2020. And his work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Esquire, and Outside Magazine, among other publications. He's written extensively for television shows, including Northern Exposure, Commander-in-Chief, and K Street. For 25 years, he was the lead strategist and media consultant for some of the nation's toughest political campaigns, uh, including Bush, Mitt Romney, etc. He attended Colorado College, Pembroke College, Oxford Middlebury College, and UCLA Film School. He's a former fellow of the American Film Institute. He's a passionate never-Trumper, and he's fighting like hell to keep this guy out of office again and to help kill Trumpism. Stuart. Welcome into the back room. Uh, thanks for asking me to the party, Andy. Appreciate yeah. it, man. Well, before we get into the, the heavier stuff, we, we at the back room like to try to get a window into people's souls. So there's two things we asked them, one at the beginning of the pod and one towards the end. First one is, are you a dog or a cat person? <laughs> uh, I, I actually uh, have, in the last few years of my life, uh, become more of a dog person. So you started out life as a cat person or yes. or uh, and and now shifting to dog. What what's what constitutes the the change in uh I like going running um on trails with dogs. Cat, yeah, cats are not known for that. No. no. But I was, I thought you were going to say because dogs are just more loyal, which would have been my answer. But and I have two cats. But dogs yeah. are definitely um a little more loyal, I think. No, I um, a million years ago, um, I lived in Switzerland and coached at the American School in Switzerland, and I smuggled the cat on board to fly to Switzerland, um, which was working great until I fell asleep on the plane and it came out of this bag I had and started going up and down the aisle of the plane. Um, but um, it was. It was it was very funny. Um, I'd say that kind of puts you in the cat part. When you start smuggling cats on an airplane, you, you, know. you're, a, you're a cat guy. Well, it was worse than I discovered, like, the day before I was supposed to leave that you had to have these, like, vaccination things. So they were supposed to be done months in advance. So I had to find a, a veterinarian. A friend of mine was married to a veterinarian. And I was able to bribe her. So that's what I remember driving around. That's what my life has been reduced to. I'm trying to find a veterinarian I can bribe. Wow. This may sound like an, I mean, maybe it's an interesting question, but you know how you people now bring dogs on planes, like therapy dogs? Yeah. Can you do that with a cat? Can you claim you have a therapy cat? Sure you can. I've seen pictures of people <laughs> having like, you know, therapy pigs. All right. You bring a cat. Well, that, there's our segue note. We'll end on that. We'll end the animal portion of our podcast discussion on All that. All right. In researching you a little bit, I, I, I found that you, uh, you wrote for television like northern exposure and stuff like that i had no idea of that and that kind yeah. of puts you in that lawrence o'donnell world you know, lawrence had a show that he created uh that i worked on um it, it ran for one season it was about an appointed u.s senator josh brolin played the senator mm -hmm. um and i worked for it you know i i've always been kind of been interested in three things politics, film, and writing. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to pursue those three at various degrees of intensity at different points. But um, I was one of those people who did what is an absolutely insane thing to do. I did go to film school, which is, I went to UCLA film school and then AFI, which is a perfect example of the academization of something that should never be, it should just be a trade, it should, you mm -hmm. know. Parents love, by the way, parents love when their kids go to film school. That always excites them. <laughs> But actually, um, 
you know, the way I, I fell into doing, you know, I was, I was interested in politics, but the way I fell into doing commercials is I had been a page in Washington for a congressman. And the guy who was his chief of staff, um, the congressman was then running for the Senate. And the guy who had been his chief of staff, who'd been my boss effectively, uh, was running for his house seat. And he was running against an incumbent senator's son. Um, and no one thought he had a chance. And he called me up and said, like, you have to make commercials for me. You're going to film school. And I said, like, that's great, but I don't know how to make commercials. I just make these stupid little films. Um, but I ended up making commercials for him, and he ended up winning, which had nothing to do with my commercials, just the right time at the right place. And then I discovered people would like pay me money to make political ads for him. Mm -hmm. And I could do it kind of like migrant labor work when working campaigns. Nobody would pay me to write. And then eventually I got to where people would pay me to write, but I had gotten into um, kind of being a political gunslinger. And I kept doing both and I fell into television writing because uh, a guy who the friend of a friend who one of the two people uh, who created uh, this show called Northern Exposure, he wanted to make a film out of a book I wrote about traveling through Africa called Malaria Dreams. And he, you know, called me up and said, look, I don't have a film deal, but um, we have this TV deal and we're doing this little summer replacement show, um, eight episodes. Um, and why don't you come out here and we can pay you to write that and we can work on the script on the side. I said, like, that's great, Josh, but I don't know how to write TV. He says, don't worry, I'll teach you. So, um, so I did. I, read, I wrote the first episode of Northern Exposure. Um, no one remotely thought it would be a success or they wouldn't have let me anywhere near it. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I did... Off and on in my life, I've done a fair amount of TV writing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, TV uh, has become incredible uh, in the last few years with the, with the quality of the content and the, and the yep. artists who are engaged in it. Before we shift to politics, I'm just curious, like, wh what do you watch? What, what are the shows that you think are the best out there right now? Oh, you know, um, I love uh, Fauda. Mm -hmm. which is an Israeli show. Yep, I love it. I think it's the best. I've, I've worked a lot in Israel. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love Israel. Um, I find it fascinating. And I think Fowder is tremendous. And, you know, those same core group of people did a series called Tehran, uh, which is shockingly good, um, about a Mossad agent, mm -hmm. undercover female Mossad agent in, in Tehran. Um, and uh, I like a lot of um, Nordic stuff. Uh, like Borderlands, mm -hmm. um, because of my sort of obsession with uh, winter sports, I have spent a lot of time in uh, Scandinavia, particularly Sweden. So I kind of have this uh, fascination with it. Um, but yeah, but I don't watch that much. Mm -hmm. I don't have the metabolic rate to watch television, really. I have to be doing something else, like, mm -hmm. you know, riding a bike or something. Or well, on a plane, I, I watch them on a plane. I just finished... The Peaky Blinders, and if you haven't seen that show, I thought, yeah, I watched, I watched several oh seasons of that. Best show I've ever brilliant. seen. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was brilliant. So, yeah. um, I want to ask you, what, what's your you're part of the Lincoln Project? You have been for a couple of years now, and obviously right. you're very, you know, anti-Trump, anti-Trumpster. You're you're definitely in that group. We've had Rick Wilson, your associate on the pod. We've had Stephanie Grisham. Condolences. Yeah, we we've. 
you know, I personally am incredibly appreciative and grateful and thank you for thankful for for people who were on the other side, uh, the you know, the darker side, as I think you've referenced in the past. Have you had a, a shift in a in party affiliation? I mean, are you still considering yeah, I'm yourself? A, I'm, not a, I'm not a. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I don't consider myself a Republican anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm basically. I would fall in that category of what we would call in politics, pretty much a functional Democrat. Right. Um, I live in Vermont now, mm-hmm. and you know, there's this little group of of Republican governors: Phil Scott here in Vermont, mm-hmm. Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, Larry Hogan in Maryland. I worked for all these guys, and I love those guys. They're they're fantastic. And if the Republican Party had any sense, they would look at them and say, you know, these guys are selling our product in the toughest markets. What can we learn from them? But they just kind of treat them with benign neglect at best. So, um, you know, in Vermont. I'm getting ready to vote. I'll, you have to run every two years when you're governor here. So I'll vote um, for uh, Phil Scott. Um, and I like this woman who's running for Congress here, the Democrat, Becca Ballin. Um, I'll vote for her. Um, so, um, you know, I would have voted for Liz Cheney, but I worked a lot with Liz. Mm-hmm. I like Liz a lot. Um, and what do you think of what happened overnight? with the news that she uh, is not only endorsing, but going to be campaigning with um, Alyssa Slotkin. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's completely consistent. I hope so. I think it's completely consistent with her, you know, putting country first. You know, I worked really closely with Liz. and I never knew any of the Cheneys until the summer of 2000 when Bush picked him to be his vice president. And I was doing debate prep for Bush and I got thrown into doing debate prep for Cheney. Um, and he did an interesting thing in that campaign. He had, you know, his two daughters and they had jobs in the campaign. They weren't just hangers on. Um, Mary worked in advance and Liz ran debate prep. Mm -hmm. It was actually the Cheney vice presidential campaign operation was, I think the first all female led national campaign, um, that made it all the way to November. Uh, the campaign manager was a woman. Everybody kind of running that Cheney world was a woman, which makes sense because Cheney lives in this kind of matriarchy, you know, with his wife and two daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, but Liz was incredibly impressive uh, doing that. Just, she had just, there's a lot of people around Cheney who thought a lot of themselves, not surprisingly. And she had a really deft touch at how to deal with them. And um, so I wrote a book about the Bush campaign, uh, the 2000 campaign called The Big Enchilada. And uh, I predicted in that that Liz would run for president. And I was sort of joking, but not really. I mean, she was that impressive. Um, so she's, a, she's, a, she's, you know, the idea that now a Cheney has been drummed out of the party, it's just mind boggling. It is mind boggling. And, and, you know, the interesting thing to me is like when you said before, if the Republican Party was smart, they'd listen more to the Larry Hogan's. And, right. you know, there is such a, a seismic shift from where the party has moved to, you know, uh, I mean, relatively speaking, it has gone from the Partridge family to the Manson family. That's where they're at today. Yet, at the same time, you also see seismic shifts in someone like Liz Cheney endorsing and campaigning with a Democrat, which who, I mean, that's mind boggling as well. 
there there really isn't an anti-Trump movement of any size in the Republican Party. Do you think that's going to change? I mean, right now, yes, no. you're a hundred percent right. But you don't think no. a year from now, no. two years from now? No, no. I, what's difficult, I think, for 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 me to grasp, I think maybe for others, is the Republican Party was not hijacked by Trump. It, the Republican Party is what it wants to be. There's no one that makes anybody vote for Trump. No one makes anybody vote for these wackadoo candidates. Mm -hmm. um, so, the, you know, I, I think it's all about race. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a country that's becoming a minority majority country, 85% of Trump's coalition in 20 was white. The country is 57 to 60% white, depending on exactly how you look at it. And, you know, since we've been talking, it's less white. Um, and the Republican Party had kind of two choices, either do the hard work necessary to appeal to more non-white voters, particularly African-Americans, or become a white grievance party. And they made the tragic decision to become a white grievance party. But is it working? Has, it wor has that strategy worked so far? It doesn't seem to have been. Well, I think, I think a couple of things. One, it, it is a strategy with a short window because of the demographic changes. You know, um, 1980, uh, 62, 63% of the voting public was non-college educated white. That's now down to 39, 40%. Um, I mean, here's a, here's a perfect number. So Ronald Reagan, 1980, wins this sweeping landslide, right? Um, he got 58% of the white vote. John McCain in 2008 lost a race, not particularly close, with 58% of the white vote. So the party understands this, which is why they're so desperate to change the rules of voting. Um, because if you make it legal for the Georgia state legislature to overturn the popular vote, when the Georgia state legislature overturns the popular vote, it won't be illegal. Um, and, you know, I think there's a great mistake to look at, there's a lot of buffoonish people over there in the, that side, you know, the Lauren Boparts, the Marjorie, whatever her name is, um, Matt Gates, but it's not a buffoonish movement. I mean, if you look historically, all the elements for an autocratic movement to succeed are with the Republican Party. It has the backing of a major party. It has unlimited financing from people like Peter Thiel. It has a propaganda wing, a vast propaganda wing, you know, Fox and all those other Ben Shapiro's, all these crazies, um, Bannon. Um, it has shock troops, as we saw on January 6th, and it has a dedicated, focused legal arm dedicated to erecting a legal structure to base this move from democracy to autocracy on. And, you know, I know a lot of these people, I mean, they think they're going to win. And that's why they're obsessed with Hungary, because they see Hungary as being a perfect example of how, how it won. Um, how they went from democracy to autocracy. Um, and honestly, it's hard to argue. I mean, I, I, you, you can't just dismiss it out of hand and say, no, they're not going to win, which is why I'm working with the Lincoln Project. I never thought at this point in my life I'd be making television ads. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I don't, I don't know what else to do except to fight. I mean, I think a lot of fights you get in not because you think you're going to win. You get in because it's important to fight. Well, uh, of the Lincoln Project, uh, I, I, James Carville has said, quote, let me tell you, the Lincoln Group, these never Trump or Republicans, the Democrats could learn a lot from them. They're mean. 
They fight hard. And we don't fight like that. Why don't Democrats fight like that? What is it that stops a Democrat from doing... I mean, the Lincoln Project came along. I remember watching it and going, finally, I mean, it takes Republicans to make the kind of ads for Democrats that I've been waiting for my whole life. Why is that? It seems so easy and obvious a goal. Well, I think it's I think it's complicated. Um, you know, people talk about how Republicans are better at messaging a lot, but it's really not a fair comparison because, you know, the audience that Republicans are messaging to is so much more homogeneous. I mean, think about putting on a concert, right? If you're putting on a concert for Republicans, it's pretty easy. Like, you know, if you're putting on a concert for the Democratic Party, you're going to have to need all these different kinds of music. You know, you're going to need like, you know, classical or rap, jazz, whatever. And that ultimately is a strength. So you're saying it's a lot easier when you just put Kid Rock on the stage. Yeah. All right. A hundred percent. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, as someone who has put Kid Rock on the stage. <laughs> um, and that ultimately is a strength. Um, it, I, look, I, I, I think to a certain degree, this is over. I think it's truth. I mean, there are certain things we know how to do, I think, better than a lot of Democrats. And we try to use those skills now. But let's don't forget, Republicans have only won the national, the popular vote once since 1988, and that was 2004. And I did that campaign. Mm-hmm. And, you know, say what you will about Bush world, we never thought that we had anything figured out. We always thought we were very lucky that it could have gone. We were, we were I think, pretty humble about it mm-hmm. because we realized, you know, if less than a stadium full of Ohio State home game changed votes in Ohio, Kerry would have won. So, um, you know, the Democrats, you say, well, the Republicans are really much better at this. You go, yeah, I don't know. The Republicans, you know, I mean, the Democrats have the White House, House and Senate. How bad can they be? So I think... Um, well, is that, because, is that little... because of the skill of Democrats or just is it because voters decided what they think is important? Is it despite, I guess my point is, do we have the House, the Senate, the, the, did we flip Georgia, did we flip Arizona in spite of Democrats? No, I think, look, I think the Biden campaign ran a brilliant campaign. I don't think they get enough credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, they never took debate with Trump. And just stuff like the convention they put on. I mean, I've done a lot of these conventions. It is incredibly hard to have three or four good nights. You can have a couple, you know. Mm-hmm. But they had to reinvent the whole convention model. Uh, Stephanie Cutter led that. I thought it was just stark raving brilliant. It's incredibly difficult to do what they do. Um, I, I, you know, when the Lincoln Project started, and I wasn't involved with it when it was started, so I can say this without any false modesty. But, you know, they took the position um, that at the time, a lot of Democrats were saying, which made sense, Elizabeth Warren kind of, encapsulate this that the 20 race should not be about trump that everybody in america has a fixed opinion on trump there's nothing you can say about trump that's going to change anybody's mind you have to make it about issues which is what they did in 2018 to some success lincoln party came along and said no trump is the number one issue the number two issue the number first 50 issues and i think they said that when biden was busy losing primaries and then when Biden won, I think he came out with a pretty similar message to Soul of America, which I think has a lot to do with why these down ticket races for Republicans get better. I mean, the ultimate test for any national presidential campaign is to, 
can you control what the race is about? So Biden made it a referendum on decency, really, you know, the soul of the nation. So you could look at somebody like Olympia Snow and go, is she a decent person? So, yeah, he's a decent person. I, you know, Larry Tillis uh, or Tom Tillis. He's, a, God, he's probably a decent person, you know, if that's the, if that's the metric. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, I think the races in Georgia, you know, I, I grew up in Mississippi. Uh, people don't kind of grasp because, you know, don't think about it. Or, the reason runoffs were invented in the South is to stop blacks from winning statewide. The idea being um, you could have, say, one black running and four you know, white people running. The black candidate might get 42%, 44%, but then you get in the runoff and all the white people would vote for the white person and they lose. And it worked pretty much with 100% success. Um, but so it's incredibly difficult. And I've worked a lot in Georgia. Johnny Isaacson, the senator who passed away, which is why they were having one of these elections, was a client of mine. Um, I don't think people appreciate the extraordinary uh, success of both of those campaigns. To win two Georgia Senate races like that, it's like winning the World Series pitching four per perfect games. It's just stunning. Um, Trump had a lot to do with it, discouraging people mm -hmm. to vote. Um, sure. But, you know, politics is always about taking advantage of your opponent's mistakes. Um, so, look, I, I, if I ran the Democratic Party right now, I mean, God help us. But, um, you know, there's only once, uh, well, three times in the last 125 years that a party in power has gained seats in off year. The last time was uh, 2002. And I was very involved in that campaign in Bush world. And we nationalized the race as much as we could around domestic security, you know, after 9-11. Um, and I can remember vividly, you know, being asked, to, you know, like in December of 21, you know, is this going to work? And our answer was, we don't know. But we think it's the best shot. Um, and it was something that Bush really believed in. Um, I, would national, I, I would try to nationalize this race around democracy. And people say, well, democracy doesn't show up, number one, in the polls a lot, da-da-da. I don't remember anybody pointing to a poll in 2007 that said hope and change is the number one issue in America. Mm -hmm. You know, campaigns are about the issues that you can try to make them about. And I mm -hmm. think campaigns have to, if a campaign doesn't invest in a message, you don't have the standing to ask voters to invest in that message. So... Every time Biden goes out and talks about democracy like this, you know, I like cheer and, you know, run around the house yelling. Because um, I think that's I think that's what the race is about. I mm -hmm. think if it's a race about inflation, that's not a race Democrats can do particularly well in. Um, though certainly Republicans have no message on inflation or gas prices. I think you have to try to make a race. It's, it's like a like a pro football or college. You know, football matchup it's got you've got to put strength on weakness mm -hmm. and i would be about the business of putting trump on the ballot so if the race were held today for president you have to bet that biden would beat trump by more than he did and there's a reason that republicans don't want trump out there for the most part um i would put trump on the ballot um, and make it a referendum on trump and democracy um, and not a reference on Biden. Right. And 
Back to Carville for a second. You know, he famously said, it's the economy stupid. I was watching MSNBC this morning and, and uh, Jen Psaki, the former uh, Biden yep. press secretary, as you know, um, she's part of MSNBC now. And they went out on a get out the vote campaign in the neighborhood. I forget where. And they knocked on a door and it was an African-American woman and the kids are behind her. And the gist of it was, I'm trying to find the money for our next meal. And I, I'm with you on the democracy thing. I really am. Because to me, there's nothing more important than that. Not abortion, not, not inflation, nothing, nothing. If our democracy dies, none of that shit matters. Yeah. But then I say, okay, Andy, get out of your elitist, liberal, politically-minded head and think about yeah. what that woman is saying. Is she worried about democracy? Is it a concept that's just too... I think it depends on how you phrase it. If you say they're going to make it harder for you and your children to vote because you're African-American mm-hmm. and you're at the lower economic scale, I think they care about that. Okay, well, that's that's critical. What you just said is what I wanted to get to, which was, okay, let's put aside Democrats. You know, can they fight as good as Republicans? Blah, blah, blah. Let's put that aside. Listening to you for the last few minutes, Democrats, when it comes to messaging, are awful. You went through a litany before of why Biden's campaign was great. I could go through a litany of why his first two years has been amazing. I'm not John Meacham, but I think he's been, a pr- historically speaking— Given what he's up against, he is one of the most effective presidents, in mo- at least in modern history. Why, why is that party with that administration running neck and neck with a party that's done absolutely nothing but support a corrupt, pathologically lying sociopath traitor? Explain that to me. I think you have to ask, why does Vegas win? Um, <laughs> you know, you have to respect the fact that, again, only three times in the last 125 years has a party in power gained seats. And, you know, you can't look at that and go, well, it's a coincidence. You know, Mm -hmm. they had bad messaging here. They had, you know, I look, the the most powerful word in advertising is new. You know, nobody ever tries to sell a car by saying, look, just as good as it was last year. (laughs) We haven't done anything. We haven't screwed this up at all. Right. And I think it is a very American inbred that's the word sort of instinct to believe that things can be better um so change i mean i i've i've always i mean i love james i think he's brilliant i work with him very closely on the show called k street and of course i love mary forever you know mary Matlin. but i i I would argue that that race wasn't about the economy i think it was about change Mm -hmm. and once that race became about change which it didn't it's the one race that george bush couldn't win because he could never be an element of the guy who'd run the CIA, been in Congress, been a Republican national chairman, vice president for eight years. He, he, he could not win a race about change. It, but it didn't have to be about change. It could have been about national security. It could have been about a lot of things. But once, you know, Clinton was running third in May. But then when Pro got out and the race became about change, he took a lead after the Democratic convention in August and never gave it up. So... Change is a very powerful desire. You know, it's an element. So I think it is difficult for a party that controls the three houses, three levels of government to argue that they are going to be a greater element of change than the people running against them. Mm -hmm. Now, I think you can. I just think it's difficult. Um, If you look at a lot of what Republicans are saying, you know, I saw this this tweet that the RNC, which is so, you know, hapless, put out. Um, 
talking about how unemployment was down of the top states, like half of them or more than half that unemployment was down had Republican governors. So if you really think about what are they arguing there, they're arguing that you know, unemployment is going down. So it's sort of like, you know, times are great, vote for change. Um, right. Now you can do this, you know, if you look at the Bush campaign in 2000, this is something we struggle with constantly. On election day in 2000, consumer confidence was at the highest level it had ever been on election day since they started tracking consumer confidence. It's a race that Biden should have won easily. Um, and the only message that we had that really worked was restoring honor and dignity to the White House. And it, that is a race that, that they should have won. Um, so you can, but did it have to be about that? No, it didn't have to be about that. Um, and obviously it was a very close race. Um, so look, I, I, I think, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you say, okay, black lives matter. You're, you're not saying that white lives don't matter. It's, it's, it's like in the Bible when they say, you know, blessed are the poor. You're not saying, you know, the other people aren't blessed. Um, so I think that when you say the race is about democracy, it doesn't mean you can't talk about these other things. We could talk about other things. But we're able to hold these, you know, completely uh, contradictory ideas in our heads. We all do, you know. I mean, if, on every given subject we do. Um, it's that balance between, you know, sometimes during the day you feel optimistic, sometimes you feel down. So, you know, we're very complicated. So um, I think ultimately all races come down to what is the question that's being asked and how can your candidate be the only answer? And I look at campaigns like arguments in front of a jury. And in the ideal campaign, I think, you could run your first spot as your last spot. It's like, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is what this is about. Mm -hmm. And in this campaign, I'm going to prove this. And then at the end, it's like, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is what this race is about. This is what we've proved. Um, and I think that there is an extraordinary situation here that the majority of Republicans do not believe that they live in a democracy now. They believe that Joe Biden was not a legally elected president, which means you don't live in a democracy. Um, we've never had that. I mean, think about what Biden is doing now. They're going on the Hill to try to work with Republicans, right? Most of those Republicans have constituents that don't believe he's a legal president. So it's like, what are you doing here? You're not legal. And the 24 election, it's unimaginable. I think Trump's going to win the primary. But no one will win the primary if it's not Trump, who will assert that Joe Biden is a legally elected president. I mean, DeSantis doesn't say that. He says he accepts Biden. Well, I accept Putin. Um, so you're going to have the first race against not two parties that have different political views, but one party trying to de defeat an illegal president who's an occupant. Mm -hmm. So I think that this, the scope of that and what this means, um, and I think the ramifications of what the party wants to do now um i think that when you're putting bounties on women seeking medical care in texas that's part of democracy because democracies don't do that that is what a totalitarian state does that's what the stasi would do you turn in your neighbor you report your neighbor um so i think that's part of democracy i think when you have the power of the government punishing political opponents in the business sector, which is what Republicans are now saying they intend to do. Mm -hmm. That's not democracy. Well, DeSantis has already done it with Disney. DeSantis has done it. You know, 
got picked a fight with the happiness company. So that's, you have to explain what this means. So it is ultimately, what is the essence of the American experiment? The essence of the American experiment is empowering you to decide your own fate. What government are you going to have? Mm -hmm. And what is happening with Republicans is they're trying to take that away. They are, um, they know that they're in the minority. Um, so they are attempting through a bunch of different ways to um, have a country in which a minority, which will have minority rule, which ultimately, you know, is, is the essence of the Electoral College, which I've now become a complete, you know, um, opponent of. Um, but it, that's what democracy is. So, you know, I look at these CEOs and we just made it in the Lincoln Project about companies that are still giving money to the Republican Governors Association, which is supporting like Mastriano and Lake. Mm -hmm. And it's like, man, you know, he or she, you're CEO of a company here. You want to be here or you want to be in Putin? You want to be in Russia? You want to be a CEO here or you want to be a CEO in Hungary where you have to be a friend of Orban to do anything? And I think it's incredibly short-sighted um, of these companies not to realize. But, you know, there's a lot of serious, serious work that has been done studying how democracies become autocracies. And one of the consistent elements is the inability to imagine it happening. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't happen in coups usually. Like, it's not like Allende in Chile. It usually happens at the ballot box and in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of the problem about this, Andy, is how to talk about it because you sound alarmist. You know, it's like a pandemic. Whatever you say at the beginning sounds alarmist, but in the end, they'll probably prove to be inadequate. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's a struggle. Um, you know, I think part of the American exceptionalism is thinking that it will always be this way in America. Um, but there's no reason for that to be true. And I, I firmly believe if Trump wins the next election, it'll be the last election we can recognize in America. You talked before yeah. about Georgia. Uh, and yeah. the, the the odds of th that election going the way it did uh, a couple of years ago, you know, conventional wisdom definitely dictates that the Democrats will lose the House, right? Yeah. Not a matter of if, but by how much. Yep. But my thing is, if you look at the last six or seven years, everything, every single thing that's happened in politics has utterly defied conventional wisdom. Listen, you're so right. In, in 2016, there are a lot of people wrong about Trump, but it's really hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. And I sort of infamously said, for Donald Trump to win, everything we know about politics has to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that's what it was. Yep. So I agree completely. And we've never had a, a case in our lifetimes of a Supreme Court decision affecting voters the way that the repeal of Roe did. Um, and that is an incalculable thing. And one of the problems, you know, when you look at all this, polling is nothing but modeling, as you know. You know, so how do you model this? Um, you know, one of the reasons the polling was so off in 2016 is there was an assumption that there was a maximum number of white voters you could get. And, you know, in, like in the Romney campaign, you could sit there and look at polls and you could say, there's certain voters out there who are low propensity white voters who, if you went a certain direction in immigration and went a certain direction playing the race card, they would be motivated to vote. 
which I mean, Romney would never even consider this. But I would have said, as just sort of like a political practitioner, that if you did that, the votes that you would lose on the other end, mm -hmm. sort of college-educated Republicans, would not compensate for the votes that you got. Um, and that proved to be wrong in 16. Though, you know, we forget, Trump won with 46.2%, I think, of the vote. Romney lost with 47.1%. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at a base level, a very simple level, why did Trump win? He won because he ran in a year in which you could win with 46.2%. Um, I mean, had Romney run in that year, he would have won easily. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I think it's very difficult to model. You know, um, so, I mean, I, I can make the case that a lot of these races are going to turn out to be more democratic than the polls are indicating. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what I always used to say in campaigns is if we're going to ask a polling question, if it's 10 points this way or 10 points that way, are we going to do anything differently? And if the answer is no, then why the hell are we asking? It? Right. You know, like, it doesn't, I mean, this is only to direct us. It's not like a, you know, we're, we're not writing a, a PhD thesis. Mm -hmm. This is just about, you know. Um, so I don't know if you believe that what you would do differently. Um, it, it I, you know, usually politics is a game of small numbers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, each of these races is very, very is probably going to be very close. And a lot of what's happening, you see people, you know, like last week, there's all this stuff about how Republicans are, you know, gaining and stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is just noise because at the end of the day, no one is going to win a race in Georgia by six points, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so what? what is, as we wrap up here, what is your, so what do you think is going to happen in 11 days? Is it conventional wisdom that prevails or are we going to see something that's shockingly unique and Democrats keep the House I have the, um, the humility to say I don't know. And I really don't know how you could say you do know. Um, because there's, I really don't know. I mean, I think that we're, we're in a unique moment. There are data points that indicate the increased number of registration among women. If you look at some of the early voting data, that this is going to be better, but, um, for Democrats, um, I think you could point to other things. You know, I think there's some weak Democratic candidates out there. Um, so I, I, I honestly don't know. You know, I, I, when I used to, you know, pitch candidates to hire me, I used to, you know, maybe that's a year or two out, right? And I'd say, well, how am I going to win? And my standard answer was, I have no idea. I mean, how could you know? Uh, which used to kind of freak, you know. Well, it's like when they interview uh, like a basketball player before the game, like, what do you got to, what do you got to do to win tonight? And it's like, I got to take that big orange thing and put it in the metal. Yeah, thing. I put it in the pad. I mean, you know, my standard answer was, I don't know how to win, but I know how to find out how to win. Right. And I think that um, the, if you really do this campaigns, and there's not a lot of us. I mean, most people do campaigns and they grow up and they go on and do other stuff, right? There's a weird little freakish subset of us that mm -hmm. are drawn to campaigns over and over and over. Um, it, it is uh, humbling. And you, you know, it's, it's like being an NFL player, you know, on any given Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to recognize that. And I think that um, 
any idea that you've figured things out is completely delusional. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't. All right. I well, no, you're 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 taking the 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 perhaps smart, safer route uh, because it is it is uh, it is a crapshoot. Um, the the last thing that we do here with the window into the soul uh, is to find out uh, about music. Music is a real window into someone's soul. So we ask, who's your top five artists of all time? Oh God! Uh, <laughs> listen, I'll take a pass on that. But um, I. Um, I find that I don't listen to as much music as I used to. And I ask myself why. And I think it's interesting. Why is it that when we're, I mean, I think it's true of a lot of people, most people probably, you know, why is it that when we're like 21, music is more important to us than as we get older? Um, and it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. Well, there might be a parallel between the, the fact that musicians also are more profound when they're younger because... Yeah, you know the true. you look at you know music and how it's written about relationships and struggles and work and all of a sudden someone's you know making yeah. a bazillion dollars a year and on that big house and a mansion in the sky and they lose their inspiration for what dr- drove them and that you know sort of correlates I think to the, the, the importance of music in young people. I just wrote a novel um, that is set um, in the civil rights era in Mississippi and Memphis. Uh, it's set in the first three months of 1968. Um, and I listened, you know, the music scene in Memphis in the first, at that period, 1968, was an extraordinary scene. Um, you, you had just this amazing confluence of talent there, white and black, you know, white, you had a guy like Alex Chilton, Mm -hmm. um, you know, who was 17, was in the box tops and later went on to do Dark Star. You had Larry Raspberry and the High Steppers. Um, and then these incredible uh, blues musicians that came up. Um, and I spent a lot of time listening to that music when I was writing this novel. Um, and, it, you know, there was also a you know, height of the Tet Offensive. You know, you had Jefferson Airplane and The Doors. Mm-hmm. And... I found that listening to the music of that era really helped me write mm-hmm. and sort of get in that mindset. Um, well, it sounds like you gave us a little window into your soul without giving us a window. You, <laughs> you actually took, let it be known that Stuart Stevens was the first uh, guest on the pod who, who took the fifth on the music question. So we'll, we'll end on that note. Stuart, you've been great. As I uh, used to say to my candidates, they can ask the question, but you don't have to answer. There you go. You just explained politics in five seconds. Thanks for coming on. You've been great. Oh, I hope hi, you'll brother. come back. Great talking with you. Yep. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Take care, man. Before we wrap up, we're going to bring back Congressman Pat Ryan for just a couple of minutes. Update on where the campaign is, his thoughts on the midterms. How's the campaign going? Uh, things are going well. We are in the final stretch, certainly. I'm literally in the car between uh, as many events and meetings and talking to voters as I can. We have really good momentum from our victory in August, and uh, we're just working to continue that fight. And right now, we're, we're leading in, in the polling, although I don't really trust polling very much at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I feel like the energy on the ground is very good. What, do you, what would you say in this 11th hour that is, is uh, the, the bright spots, and what do you think uh, remains a challenge for you as, as you head towards the 8th? Well, I mean, I think 
to me, the bright spots are just, again, reflecting on what we were able to do in our special election, where all the polls and pundits thought we were not going to win that race. And the people of our community of the Hudson Valley stood up when the national spotlight was on us and said, we're going to fight for choice. We're going to fight for freedom. We're going to fight for democracy. We're going to fight for safety and sent a, a, a really a, a resounding message. So uh, when, when we're faced with that, again, I, I think people are going to rise to the challenge even more this time. And I'm definitely feeling that, that energy. I think, you know, the challenge is, is we're, we're certainly still deal, you know, having a lot of conversations with folks who are feeling a lot of economic pain and pressure and just overall distrust with government, frankly. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a lot of work to do to rebuild that trust. And that's the only way we do that is actually deliver results and help people. Uh, so that's, that's what we're just trying to continue to focus on and work on. Mm-hmm. You had a, an event recently in Poughkeepsie. Biden came. Uh, you're kind of, a, I, don't, I won't say you're in a small group, but you're definitely in a group of people who are embracing Biden and the success of Biden's administration uh, and his presidency. Um, why do you think more Democrats running are, are not doing that, given where you know, the accomplishment level has been these, these last two years? Yeah, I, I don't honestly. I don't understand why, you know, uh, we wouldn't be tremendously proud and be shouting from the rooftop the work we've done, the the results we've delivered. There's still a lot to do. I mean, a lot we haven't certainly accomplished everything, but to have the president of the United States come to the Hudson Valley, deliver a twenty billion dollar commitment from one of the world's leading companies in IBM to to reinvest in this region. And that's a huge deal. I, I literally said it was a BFD. Uh, right. uh, the, the president got a chuckle at that. Um, and, uh, it, but it is. And so I, I think there are two things we have to do, of course. One is continue to recognize and, and help people understand we are all experiencing this pain at grocery stores, gas pumps, uh, healthcare costs, housing costs. But we're actually delivering to, to help address that immediate relief and, and medium and long term uh, results in terms of rebuilding the economy here. So I just think at the end of the day, there's sort of like two ways you can think about a, a campaign and, and talking about things. It's, there's a whole lot of it's either rhetoric or results, really, is what I'm trying to say. And I just feel like people are tuned out from and should be the, the rhetoric and they just want to see results. So. That's really uh, what we're continuing to talk about, remind people about. Mm-hmm. So as we uh, do this podcast, literally from the 18th district in New York, uh, what do you say, what's your, fine, what's your closing argument, uh, your elevator pitch closing argument uh, to our listeners who happen to be residing in the uh, 18th district? Uh, what's, what's the pitch for the, for the 8th from Pat Ryan? Well, I mean, the high level pitch is, please, please, you got to come out and vote. I, I hope it's for me. <laughs> Uh, but really, our democracy is hanging by a thread. We need everybody to be engaged, to participate, to understand the threat. Uh, when fundamental rights are being ripped away from tens of millions, basically half the country plus, we have to stand up as Americans. I mean, that's just a red line. When, when literally our democracy is at risk, uh, we need to stand up and, and answer that with uh, resounding results. So that, that, uh, that's fighting for rights plus delivering real tangible relief. Those are the, the, the twin imperatives, I think, of the moment we're in. And that's really what our campaign is about and what, what I've been trying to 
uh, you know, I, I think that, um, again, looking back on what we saw in August, I'm optimistic that we're going to deliver again here in the Hudson Valley. And, and the path to holding the Congress and the House specifically literally runs through, you know, Rhinebeck, Kingston, Beacon, Poughkeepsie, Newburgh. And so uh, please step up for our democracy. Uh, Congressman Patrick Ryan, uh, we wish you a lot of success on the 8th. Thank you for coming back and giving us a, a quick update. And uh, we'll be rooting for you on uh, a couple of Tuesdays from now. Take care. Thank you for having me. All Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Episode 22 in the can. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And if you like the pod, please leave a review. Those things are kind of important. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio. And a big thank you again to our guest, the Lincoln Project's Stuart Stevens and Congressman Pat Ryan. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.